Hi, this is Unsuitable with Mary B. Seyfried, the podcast where I interview single Christians about their lives and faith. Welcome to the series wrap-up. Throughout the past four interviews, we heard each of the guests tell stories of self-awareness and growth. They each come at it from different angles, so definitely give the interviews a listen if you haven't already. For today's episode, we're going back to a tale from the days of yore, aka my time auditioning for musicals. In the music theater world, it's not enough to be able to sing and act and look exactly like whatever the casting director happens to have in mind. One must also be able to dance. When I entered the world of musical theater auditions, I initially circumvented this disaster by only going after roles with no specified dance requirements. But I knew if I wanted to succeed long-term, I would eventually have to dance. Enter my fraught year of sporadic dance classes. I approach dance with the subtlety of a rugby player. I muscle and manhandle my way through the routine with the grace of a two-ton bull and the equilibrium of a wounded bumblebee. In my limited dance training, I have never once successfully spotted, meaning any time I twirl, whether it's once or thrice, I need to find a wall to stabilize myself. I do not mean to find a spot on the wall with my eyes so that I don't get dizzy. That's what happens in for real spotting. I mean a physical wall for me to fall into once I have completed the pirouette floor exercise. This is the only way I can reorient myself to a non-wibbly-wobbly understanding of reality. I generally studied with this one teacher, let's call him Steve, who taught beginner theater dance. I am uncertain what exactly they think beginner means, as everyone in the class had the fancy Broadway shoes that for real dancers wear and could pirouette for days. On my good days, I shrugged and told myself, well, Marbs, somebody has to be the worst student in the class. On my less than good days, let's just say my mental dialogue was a bit more colorful. One time, Steve advertised a class he taught on Tuesday nights. It says it's advanced beginner, but really, it's basically the same as this class. And like the sucker that I am, I believed him. Steve was woefully mistaken. I did try an easier class called basic theater dance. The teacher began by forcing everyone to smile which is a sure way to guarantee that I will refuse to smile for the entire 60-minute class. This guy, we'll call him Daryl, led us through a pretty standard warm-up, a.k.a. one million crunches. We then spent the next half hour improvising. I understand what Daryl was trying to do, getting us comfortable with moving around and helping us become less self-conscious and all of that. Sweet, blessed Daryl, led us in a series of exercise in which he would say things like, move around like your favorite color. Okay, now move around like your least favorite color. Okay, now move around like a combination of the two. The absurdity peaked when he said, move around like spaghetti. Okay, now move around like a meatball. Okay, now move around like the sauce. Now you're all three. Throughout all of this, Daryl made it his personal mission to get me to enjoy myself. No, Daryl. There are some things that just cannot be. As I crawled across the floor doing my best expression of spaghetti sauce, I imagined myself in an audition. When the casting director asked if I could do a pirouette, I would say, no, I cannot. I can, however, roll around like a meatball. Please hire me. So I went back to the more challenging class. 
I did improve a bit in spite of barreling through the routines like a rhinoceros and frequently getting lost mid-routine. The best dancers tell a story with their movement. Mine said, Hello, it's time to dance, so here I am dancing and I'm very serious about it. Please stop looking at me. I think I could have been sort of all right if I stuck with it. However, if you have seen me dance, like for real all-out dance in a social setting, you can confirm that restraint and grace never enter the equation. I've started to accept my lack of gracefulness. Call it a lack of depth perception or the fact that I spend an inordinate amount of time in my head, therefore not paying a ton of attention to my immediate surroundings. Either way, I run into stuff, trip over nothing, and spill liquid all over myself with relative frequency. I am not especially gentle or dainty. There are a few things about myself that I would not consider stereotypically girly. This bowl-in-a-china-shop vibe is one of them, and it's been a point of insecurity. I took a year or two of ballet as a youth, but ultimately decided it wasn't for me. Barreling around a field chasing a soccer ball, on the other hand, turned out to be very much my jam. I really related to Katie in episode four when she talked about not being bubbly and how that affected her view of herself as a Christian woman. In fact, the theme of self-awareness came up in each of the episodes in this series. PJ talked about being an emotionally driven male when he thought he should be more logical. Susan talked about feeling like epilepsy was her identity and the toll it took on her mental health. And Jack described living in a place that made her feel like she was moving in fast forward. Each of these guests in turn told us about their process of growing to accept themselves. I found their depth and insight compelling. In speaking with each of them and relating to their stories, I found myself becoming more aware of some of my own less than helpful tendencies like how deeply I care about controlling how I am perceived. That's partially why I hated Daryl's class so much. I desperately wanted to be taken seriously as an artist, and I felt that he was making me look like an idiot. I mean, I'd do it, but I needed everyone to know that I was above it. How are you able to see yourself in their stories or hear your experiences in theirs? Maybe like PJ, you grew up in an environment that prized a personality trait you didn't have. Maybe like Susan, there was something you learned about yourself or an experience you had that causes you deep shame. Or like Jack, you prioritize things that didn't seem so important to the people around you. Maybe like Katie, you believe there is a specific ideal of what you should be, but you can't seem to measure up to it. Some of these ideas and messages come from our own interpretation of certain experiences, and some are overtly communicated. As we move through our lives, we might notice tendencies to hide parts of ourselves that we don't like or we don't feel are prized by the people around us. These tendencies can be so deeply ingrained that they are somewhat reflexive. There's an element of self-awareness that often happens retrospectively, which is something each of the guests mentioned. Often, we aren't able to put words to or process what we're doing and why in the moment, particularly when we are growing up. We are reacting to our surroundings on a subconscious and conscious level, and the patterns we develop as a result can be difficult to notice until they are interrupted, either by a move to a different set of surroundings or by a close friend or partner who might say, huh, that's interesting. Why do you do that thing? 
There's a story in the Bible of this man who had been sick for a really long time, 38 years to be precise. At some point in those 38 years, this dude started hanging out by this pool. The belief was that when the water moved, the first person or the first few people to get into the water might be healed. This was a place for the desperate, those who thought this was their best and only shot at getting better. Jesus enters the scene quietly and approaches this one man, a man who didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus proceeded to ask this man an odd question. Do you want to get well? One would think the answer is fairly obvious, as this dude was clearly not hanging out there for the view. The man explains, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus replies with a command, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. A lot happens in this brief interaction, and it's only the first part of the story. You can read the rest in John chapter 5. But for now, let's walk through a couple of things in this chunk of the story. Jesus walks into this place that would have been brimming with both desperation and hope. He encounters a man who thinks that healing will come if he just had someone to help him into this pool. Wellness would mean dignity, acceptance, and agency. Jesus encounters this man, and the story says that Jesus knew this man had had his condition for a long time. So, when Jesus asks him if he wants to get well, we have to wonder why. Was it rhetorical? Was Jesus signaling that this seemingly helpless man did in fact have agency and choice? Or was Jesus doing something else entirely? Healing would have been a complete reorienting of this man's life. Everything would change, perhaps for the better, but it would still be a change. And perhaps this is why Jesus asks. I find that though I profess to want healing and wellness, I often hesitate to take steps to make it happen. Or I get so stuck on my idea of what healing would mean or where it will come from. I am, therefore, not open to the idea that there might be something even better available, and my understanding of what is possible remains limited by my own imagination. If we read through the stories of Jesus interacting with and healing people, we might notice there isn't a one-size-fits-all way he goes about it. Some people he touches. One dude got spit mud rubbed in his eyes. Another person was healed without Jesus even being near them. And so it would seem that the manner and minutia of the healing are worth paying attention to. What sticks out to me as it pertains to our conversation is the fact that this man thought his healing would come from one place and would manifest in a particular way. The formula was simple, if not easily achieved for someone in his condition. Watch the water, get in the water, be healed. It would have been a frustrating cycle to see the water move and consistently not make it in than to sit and wait for the next opportunity. And yet he stayed, and he watched. But when his healing arrived, it didn't come from the pool. It came from some random dude who walked up and asked him a weird question. Later, the man meets Jesus again and learns who he is. But initially, 
Jesus was just some guy off the street. Perhaps this man could sense something different about Jesus. Or maybe he just saw a stranger going out of his way to interact with someone he might be expected to avoid. Regardless, the man's response to Jesus' question could connote him making an excuse as to why he was not yet well. I think there's another possibility. What if this man sensed that Jesus might be asking the question because he was in a position to help? And so, in response, the man explained how Jesus might help. The man asked for what he knew, what he imagined the method of his healing might be. When confronted with an area of our lives where something is missing, we might think our growth or healing can only happen if we obtain this one thing or fix this other thing. If only we had someone to help us into the pool when the water was stirred. And when Jesus shows up, we might be tempted to hang on to our old ideas of what wellness means and how we get it. But Jesus approaches us relationally, that is to say, with the specificity that comes from knowing someone. Sometimes, there are things we think we need in order to be well. Maybe we think that if we only had a spouse— we would never have to feel that deep undercurrent of loneliness again. Maybe like PJ, we think that something that is different is more of a liability than a gift. So we fix and we compensate. Our wellness and awareness of what is unwell in us operates on every part of our whole selves, mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical. It might be straightforward at times, but for me, I often find myself focused on one thing when there is a deeper issue at play that I might not be aware of. Susan talked about how her perspective on living with epilepsy shifted when it went from a shameful secret affliction to fix to part of herself she learned to live with. While there was a huge need for her to seek treatment from medical professionals, there was not a definitive cure to find that would make her condition disappear altogether. The fact that I am not graceful results in certain challenges in my life, sure. But the fact that I consistently hang my sense of self on other people's assessment of me, that causes problems in my everyday life. It permeates my day-to-day interactions and my close relationships. Each guest talked about seeing something in themselves that wasn't normal, they thought and mostly interpreted that as shameful or detrimental. Jack was, for the most part, able to see her differences from the people around her as an asset. Katie, PJ, and Susan, on the other hand, described the pain and pressure they felt as a result of their awareness and the unconscious choices they made that have shaped their idea of self for decades. Self-awareness can be painful, and it can even become unhealthy if not held in perspective. For me, self-awareness and knowing all of the conscious and unconscious motivations for every decision I make in relation to myself and the people around me is a thousand percent about control. If I can know, then I can be aware of all things at all times, and then I can address them and fix them and be hyper-conscious at all times and in all situations. Yeah, that is not wellness, folks. (laughs) It's important when considering these stories and the idea of self-awareness to ask, what am I hoping will happen? Why am I doing this? As I am of the Jesus-y persuasion, I believe in the Holy Spirit, which lives inside of me and reveals these tendencies and motivations to me in time. 
There are certain things that we're not ready to face all at once. Even as you heard yourself in these interviews, were you able to also hear the hope that ran through them? As each of these guests continue to grow and learn in the day-to-day, they have moments where they experience God in the midst of the uncertainty. They found resources and asked for help. They're developing healthy relationships with people who care about their well-being. They're growing in small ways in their everyday lives. The infuriatingly beautiful thing about growth and progress is that it seems to be made in small moments. It's in the hours of practice I wasn't willing to put in and the mistakes I wasn't willing to make in the dance studio because I was far too concerned with being seen as serious as I understood it. It's in the moments of everyday humility and honesty we practice as we come before God with all that remains undone in us and the world around us. It's in the moments when PJ's girlfriend calls attention to his off-putting habits. It's in the support systems that Katie, Jack, and Susan have made that help them see where they might be focusing on the figurative water in the pool instead of Jesus. It's in recognizing that, though we sometimes don't understand what we need or how to get there, Jesus shows up and offers us the way of freedom and of hope. And perhaps the best news in all of it, Jesus doesn't wait for us to be well or pull ourselves together before approaching us. Jesus comes to us even when we don't know who he is, even when we are actively looking somewhere else, even when we can't imagine any other way to live. Jesus comes and asks us, do you want to get well? That's all for the wrap up. There won't be a new episode next week. But the following week, we start the new series, which is on dating. There are some dynamite stories in there, so make sure you subscribe or follow so you don't miss anything. If you're picking up what I'm putting down, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts if you're able. It helps other people find the show. The more ratings and reviews, the more searchable the podcast is. If you liked this episode, check out my blog for more unsuitable stories at marybesafret.com which is conveniently linked in the episode description. If you want to take this thing to the next level, while you're there, you can sign up for my fortnightly email newsletter. Every other Wednesday, I send out a special message from Marbs, that's me, conversation challenges, content updates, and a tip on how to increase your mental bandwidth. When you sign up, you'll receive access to two guides. One is on how to soulfully engage in your work, The other is on how to make friends without hating everything. If anything about this episode has made you feel overwhelmed or distressed, please reach out to a trusted counselor or call the NAMI hotline at 1-800-950-NAMI, which is 6264. That's all for now. Check back in a couple weeks for a new episode. Unsuitable with Mary B. Seyfried is copyright Mary B. Seyfried, LLC, 2019. All rights reserved.